Let's take our Bible and open to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2. If you are new to the Bible or you don't quite know how to work your way around the Bible, there should be one in front of you in the pew. And Daniel chapter 2 is on page 737 of that Bible. One of the foundational doctrines of the Christian faith is the doctrine of revelation. The idea that there is something hidden, something unknown to us, something out of our grasp, something that we can't know on our own, but it has been revealed to us. Christianity is a revealed religion. See, the Bible teaches us that that we could know nothing of God if He didn't reveal Himself to us. But the good news is that He has. First, through creation. The Bible teaches us that creation proclaims to us, all of the created order proclaims to us that God is both powerful and glorious. But creation isn't enough to fully know God. Creation and appreciating creation is not enough to make one a Christian. This would be like saying that you really know Johann Sebastian Bach because you've listened to and love his music. Now, there is something you can know of him, right? You can know that he's brilliant. You can know that he's creative. But you can't actually know the man. It's nowhere near enough just to listen to the music. You need more. You need words. And that's what God provides for us in the Bible. God has given us words about Himself so that in the Bible, His goodness, His holiness, His mercy, His wrath, His grace, His justice, His sovereignty are all revealed In addition to that, God reveals Himself to us, revealed Himself to us fully and finally in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is God in the flesh. He is the Word of God made flesh. So that Jesus says in John chapter 14 that if you see me, if you have seen me, you see the Father. Okay? So Christianity is a revealed religion. Everything we know about God has been made known to us by God. And this idea of revelation and of God being the revealer is central in Daniel chapter 2. You see, 28 times in these 49 verses, we find the concept of revelation, something being revealed or shown or made known. Now, it is a long chapter, and so we're going to break it into two halves. I'll read the first half, and then we'll think about that, and then I'll read the second half. But first, I want us to pray. And just as a reminder, we pray like this, not because it's just what you're supposed to do before a sermon. You see, God has revealed Himself to us in His Word, but we pray before we read it, before we teach it, because We need the Holy Spirit to take these words and actually reveal them personally to us so that we see the truth, we see the beauty in them, we see the goodness in them, we see the glory in them. So that's why we pray before 
we preach or we teach. So let's do that now. Let's, let's pray. Father, we come to words that you have spoken, that you inspired by your Holy Spirit to be written down so long ago. And yet your word, your truth resounds with relevance throughout all of human history. And so we ask you by your Spirit to speak to us, to take your word and plant it deep in us and cause it to bear fruit. Open our eyes to your truth, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So before I read, what we're going to see here in the first half of this chapter is that God reveals. All right? God reveals. So I'm going to read verses 1 to 30. All right? So this is why it's good just to have the Bible open right in front of you so you can follow along. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word for me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of a magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. 
Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with Him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. Therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation." Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen in its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed, came thoughts of what would be after this, and he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king, and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. Now, it's quite a story. Things are shifting gears here. If you don't remember from last week, the the Jews are in exile in Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar is king of Babylon, and up to this point, the story's been written in Hebrew, and you heard it say that that Nebuchadnezzar said in Aramaic, well, it's not just his statement that's Aramaic, everything after that, up until the end of chapter 7, is in Aramaic. And the reasons why have been batted around, and I think the most convincing to me is that Aramaic is a more international language than Hebrew was. And that really what we're going to find in chapters 2 to 7 both speaks to the world and is meant to be heard by the world, both loud and clear. But just picture the scene. It's early in the morning, the wee hours of the morning. The sun's not even up yet, but Nebuchadnezzar can't sleep. He's tossing and he's turning. He's staring at the ceiling. He's maybe lighting a candle so he can maybe try to read and settle his mind, but nothing works. So once the sun is up, he calls in the wise men. I mean, if anyone can help, they can. But as they file in, Nebuchadnezzar has these suspicions in the back of his mind. Now, I I don't know if he's suspicious because he's seen something lately or because Nebuchadnezzar is just a paranoid guy. But in, but in verse 9, he says of them, You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Still, he needs them. If anybody's going to interpret this dream, 
these are, the, these are the most qualified guys there are to do it. And so he makes his request clear in verse 3. I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Oh, yes, they think. We've got books for this. And they did. They had libraries of books. They would go to the books and, oh, you had this kind of dream. This is what it meant. You saw this in your dream. This is what it meant. Oh, we, we, we can definitely do that. So one of them speaks up and says, Oh, king, tell us the dream, and we'll tell you what it means. Well, they didn't quite understand what he meant, because what Nebuchadnezzar wants them to do is tell them what he dreamed, then tell him what it means. And if they can't do it, they're going to die horrible deaths. They're going to be torn limb from limb. But if they can do it, they'll be greatly rewarded. I mean, I want you to imagine a husband and his wife walks in the room, right? And she plops down very intentionally on a chair, and she gives a, is something wrong, dear? Oh, something's wrong, and you, of all people, should know what's wrong. (laughs) It's both a scary and confusing moment, isn't it? That's essentially what's happening here. Nebuchadnezzar saying, you just need to look inside my mind, tell me what I dreamed, and then tell me what it means. So confusion comes over their faces. Apparently, uh, the king has forgotten how this whole thing works. So a second time, verse 7, let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation. But Nebuchadnezzar puts his foot down. They'll do what he says, or they'll get what they get. And then they make this statement, verse 10, there is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand, for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. The Chaldeans, by the way, were renowned as astrologers. So no magicians, no enchanters, no astrologers are going to be able to come along and help you. This is a huge statement. If you write in your Bible, circle this. Mark this. No man on earth can tell you what you dreamed. We can use our man-made books and we can give you our man-made explanations of anything that you tell me, but I cannot tell you what you dreamed. Now, of course, the gods could, but you know, they don't dwell with the flesh. They don't let us in on their little secrets. That's what the wise men think. But do you know the Bible has a different explanation for why the gods don't reveal? Psalm 115 says, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. And then consider what God says about these so-called gods and those who make them and worship them in Isaiah 46. Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales, they hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god. Then they fall down and worship. They lift it to their shoulders. They carry it. They set it in its place and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, It does not answer or save him from his trouble. 
You see, false religions and false gods have no answer for the troubled soul. Because the only words that false gods have are the words that human beings put into their mouths. That's all they can say is what we've told them to say in the first place. Any man-made system trying to understand the inner life is insufficient. There are scores of books laying out theories and, and promoting philosophies and developing therapies. But the problem of a troubled soul is beyond mankind's intellect and ability to solve. You see, mankind is kind of like Nebuchadnezzar here. We are powerful in so many ways. We, we have basically everything we want in so many ways, and yet... Our troubled souls can't be calmed. The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked above all else. Who, who can know it? Who can figure it out? Who can answer it? And when a troubled soul doesn't get the relief at once, it's no surprise when anger comes along. And so when Nebuchadnezzar's anger emerges... Daniel enters the scene, verse 12, because of this the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out and the wise men were about to be killed and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Why? Because in chapter 1 they had been exalted. They were worth ten times more than any, any other wise man in Babylon. So they're going to die with everybody else. So Daniel talks to the captain of the guard, Arioch, and he asks this question in verse 15, why is, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Uh, it's not the, actually the best translation of that word because, because urgent gives us a sense of like hurried and timely. The, the, the question is more, why is, why, is, why is the decree of the king so cruel? Why is the decree of the king so harsh? Why is it so severe? And so Ariok catches him up to speed and talks about the dream and the wise men and how, how we got here. So Daniel gets an appointment with the king. He will supply what the king wants. He will bring to the king the interpretation. But listen again. I tried to read it in a way that you would catch it, but I'm going to read it again. Verses 16 to 19. Listen to how things unfold. Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed. Did you catch that? Daniel says he'll bring the, the interpretation before he even has it. He says, I'll bring it. And then he goes back and says, boys, we need to pray. Look, this is a kind of faith. This is a faith that knows that God alone is the one who can intervene. And he's trusting God alone to intervene. 
Now, just because he's saying this, he's not actually trying to leverage God. He's not putting God on the hook here, okay? Just because Daniel's named it doesn't mean he can claim it, all right? So, what he does, because notice how he prays in verse 18. What is it that they are seeking from the Lord? Mercy. Revelation is an act of mercy on the part of God. Because humanity is pitiful without knowledge of Him. We are pitiful without knowledge of Him. Without His truth. And in this specific situation, it's merciful because His revelation will save Daniel's life along with the lives of his friends, along with, by the way, the lives of a bunch of pagan wise men who don't care anything about God. You see, when people come very near to death and they are saved, they're in some kind of horrible car accident or they have some kind of awful uh, tragedy at home or whatever it is, but they come out alive, it is right for them to know that God had saved their physical life. It's an act of mercy. It's merciful. And so then, verse 19 says, the mystery was revealed. But before Daniel goes to the king with the interpretation, he's going to go to God with praise. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. God is the source, the revealer. Anyone who has any spiritual wisdom, it is because God has given it. Now notice, Daniel, Daniel even implies that God doesn't tell us everything. He knows what's in the dark. You ever felt like you were in the dark about what's going on in your life, in the world? Like you're in the dark? Guess who knows what's in the dark? God. Does He reveal everything that's in the dark? No, He does not. Does He reveal enough for us to walk in dark days? Yes, He does. He gives us everything that we need to live for Him during our days. So Daniel goes to the king, and he begins his speech. Did you notice this? He begins his speech with almost the exact same words that all the pagan wise men had used back in verses 10 and 11. Look at verse 27. No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. He just underlines it. No man can do this. No man can do this. Can you imagine? He's volunteered for the job. He says, I'm the man for the job. And he shows up, and then he says, no man can do this. And then he says, but there is a God in heaven, and he reveals mysteries. There is a God in heaven who speaks. Not even the dreams of the night escape His sovereign work. There's a God in heaven, Nebuchadnezzar. And I would say the same to you. 
No one has the answer for your troubled soul. No wise friend, no philosopher, no therapist, no life coach, no self-help book, no man-made religion. But there is a God in heaven. That was precisely Kayla's testimony this morning, wasn't it? But there is a God in heaven. And He's revealed Himself in His Word. And His Word restores the soul. And His Word gives wisdom. And His Word gives joy to the heart. And His Word gives help. And His Word gives hope. And He's given it to us. God reveals. But we don't just see that God reveals in this chapter. We see what God reveals. Let's begin reading verse 31. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away, so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell you the king, tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the power, the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, And into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things." And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage and But they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. Apparently, Nebuchadnezzar's dream isn't just a dream. Apparently, it's not just his own personal nightmare. The God that he doesn't know, Daniel's God, has 
spoken to him through this dream. And this dream is bigger than Nebuchadnezzar. This dream goes beyond Nebuchadnezzar. It goes into the future, unveiling what is coming down the corridor of world history. And the revelation of the future comes in the form of a giant image, a statue divided into four parts that picture four successive kingdoms. And then there's a twist in the end. So let's just think about these things. First, the four kingdoms. Now, more is going to be said of these kingdoms later in the book. Right here, if you will look at verse 30, you will see why this mystery was revealed to Daniel. It was revealed in order that the interpretation may be known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. Nebuchadnezzar is the first audience of these words. So what we cannot do is launch beyond that at this point. The future of Daniel here will go beyond that. But what we want to do is focus on what is it that God is seeking to say to this pagan king whose soul is troubled. What is he saying there? What is he saying to him? And what is it that what God says to Nebuchadnezzar, why does that matter to the Jews who would receive Daniel and be reading it? So, I'll leave details about kingdoms for future weeks, and we'll stick to what this text is pointing us to. The first kingdom is gold. It's the only one identified by Daniel in his interpretation. It's Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. You'll see in verse 38 the extent of uh, this kingdom. Into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. But note the source of all that greatness. Verse 37. You, O king, to whom the God of heaven has what? What's the word? The God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory. If you have a pen, circle the words kingdom, might, power, and glory. Because in two weeks, Lord willing, when we come to Daniel chapter 4, those words are going to come back again. And something very significant is going to happen. But I'm not going to dive into what Chad's going to teach on that day. God has given this kingdom. And then there's a second kingdom. It's inferior, verse 39 of silver. It just gets a brief mention. The third kingdom is of bronze. Uh, and the end of verse 39 says, that kingdom shall rule over all the earth. Then the fourth kingdom has iron legs with feet of iron that are mixed with clay. It is strong and yet brittle at the same time. It is a strange image that we come into contact with. What are we to make of this? What is it that Nebuchadnezzar is meant to hear in all of this? Well, first he's to hear that these kingdoms are strong and intimidating. Go back to verse 31, how Daniel begins. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. Okay? These kingdoms are not small and insignificant. They are strong and they are intimidating, but also, secondly, they're diminishing. Did you notice that? The second kingdom is inferior to the first. Even the materials out of which the image is made goes down in value from gold to silver to bronze to iron. But thirdly, 
These kingdoms are temporary. None of them last. They're all passing. One will come up and take the place of the other. The kingdoms of men may be strong and may be influential and may be quite terrifying, but they come and go. They rise and they fall. This is, this is the pattern of world history. One commentator says, kings and kingdoms, presidents and dictators, democracies and tyrannies and monarchies come and go and enter the landfill of history. That puts things into perspective, isn't it? It is a helpful reminder that the American experiment is not the great hope of the world. There is something outside of any kingdom, any republic, that gives hope. But this great and bright and powerful and intimidating image isn't all there is to the dream. There's another piece to the puzzle. It's a rather surprising piece, isn't it? It's one stone. One stone. Look at verses 34 and 35. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the shaft of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. The, the, the shaft is that outside part of the grain that blows away, so the, the grain falls and the shaft blows away. It's nothing. You remember the story of David and Goliath? Do you remember that story right? Here's this young man who has a sling and a stone, and with a sling and a stone, he slays a giant. I mean, it's an unlikely tale, right? Giants do not die from a little stone. How much more unlikely is this? That this incredibly monstrous and terrifying image of gold and silver and bronze and iron would be destroyed by a stone. I mean, can you just imagine a little boy or a little girl standing at the foot of the Statue of Liberty and bending down and picking up a stone, right? And they hurl it at Lady Liberty and it hits her and the whole thing turns to dust. That's how shocking that image should be. Just blows away. And Nebuchadnezzar's frightening image, this thing that haunts him, this thing that keeps him up at night, is turned to dust and blows away in the breeze. Friends, this is the way of the kingdoms of man because they are meant to exalt people. They are meant to glory in human beings and human ingenuity and human power and human creativity, which are all, rightly used, wonderful things. But the kingdoms of man seek to, and, 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 seek to make these things ultimate. And in the eyes of God, this kind of exaltation of man is wicked, so that as Psalm 1-4 says, the wicked are like shaft that the wind drives away. And this stone, having destroyed the statue, becomes a mountain that fills the earth. But it isn't just another kingdom of man. It's not just another man-made kingdom. It's not just a human beings with better ideas. 
This is the kingdom of God, distinct from all others. We see that both in the, in the picture of this kingdom as well as in its interpretation in verse 44. So that, the, let me read verse 44. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. So the kingdom of God is indestructible. It will never be destroyed. The kingdom of God is permanent. It won't be left to any other people. It will stand forever. The kingdom of God is all-encompassing. It's going to grow into a mountain that fills the earth. The kingdom of God is supernatural. It It comes from a stone that is cut by no human hand. This is the kingdom that God promises to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. It's the kingdom Jesus spoke of in Mark 1. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. It's the kingdom that will swallow up every other kingdom. Revelation 11, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. All this from one stone. The stone, if you know your Bibles, that the the builders rejected. That stone is Jesus Christ. And He came... And he died and he rose again, inaugurating a new kingdom, a kingdom where sin is forgiven, a kingdom of righteousness and joy and peace, a kingdom that is tied to heaven and not tied to earth, a kingdom where his reign of righteousness remains. And yet a kingdom that looks as insignificant as a stone. A kingdom that even today still looks insignificant to the world. But a kingdom that's growing as the gospel is proclaimed as our brothers and sisters all around the world putting their life on the line to reach unreached peoples, getting the gospel where it has not been heard, where our mission partners are working That as we take the gospel to the end of the street, they are taking the gospel to the ends of the world, the ends of the earth. And that kingdom is expanded as the gospel, the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ who died for us, is proclaimed as folks turn from their sin and trust in Jesus Christ, like Cody and Kayla, who proclaimed basically in their baptism, we belong to King Jesus. It's growing. Little by little, the stone grows, becoming a mountain, expanding into every nation, into every language. And one day, this kingdom will be manifestly the greatest. It will cover the earth. Listen to how Isaiah describes it. 
On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food and a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of His people He will take away from all the earth. This great mountain, the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, will fill the earth. Indeed, it will be the earth. It will be the new earth. And there will be no space that is not clearly and fully and finally marked off as His for all to see. It's quite a dream, isn't it? You and I don't have dreams like this. But this one is written down so that we'll remember it. So that we'll remember it when our God and His ways and His Word and His people are said to be insignificant. So that we will take heart because God has revealed where history is going. So that we will keep on. So that we will stay steady. So that we will persevere even when it seems that forces opposed to God's kingdom are winning. But not just so that we'll take heart and stay encouraged and think about the future, but also so that kind of like what Daniel did, we have God's revelation in our hands and we'll stand up before those in the world who need to hear God's revelation and we will speak it. We will share the good news of God's kingdom in Jesus Christ. We will share the hope that is within us. Remember this dream. And remember this dream when you're tempted to think that some kind of uh, election or governmental structure will change everything. Because there is no party, no person, no structure, no kingdom, no republic that will stand in the end. The only kingdom left in the end of Daniel's vision of Nebuchadnezzar's dream is the kingdom of God with King Jesus on the throne at the peak of that great mountain, as it were, with His righteousness reigning forever. I wonder, do you belong to that kingdom? I wonder if you know the peace and the joy of Jesus Christ, of being His, The doors of the kingdom are wide open this morning, friends. There's room at that feast that Isaiah talks about. There's room at that feast for you if you would turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ. When Daniel closes with this, a great God has made known to the king what shall be. Don't forget who revealed this, Nebuchadnezzar. Don't you forget who drew back the curtain of the future and let you have a peek. 
He is a great God. And the chapter closes with Nebuchadnezzar's response to Daniel. He falls down before Daniel in order to honor Daniel's God. Not to repent. Not to leave his pagan religion. Not to submit to God. But basically to pat Daniel on the back and says, Boy, that's a mighty, fine, that's a mighty nice God you have to tell me what my dream means. He's the God of gods. Now, he says things that he doesn't actually believe because later on he's going to deny it in his, own, in his own actions. Because this word, this image in verse 31, this image that is towering in his dream, basically it is the same word that will appear over and over again in chapter 3. So that instead of this image bringing him to humility and repentance, the image gives him an idea. I need an image. I need an image that will be bright and will be shining and will be terrifying and everybody will fall before it. No, he won't submit to the Lord. He'll just recognize that God, Daniel's God, is the one who gives the revelation. He says, truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. And you have been, before you have been able to reveal this mystery. And that takes us back to what I believe is the theme of the whole chapter, which is that God reveals his purposes and his plans to his people. The dream is in Daniel 2, but the dream is there because God is a revealer, God pulls back that which keeps our finite minds from understanding infinite truth. And He shows us. What will you do with what God has said? Because the revelation that God gives us in His Word is meant to strengthen our faith and meant to give us hope. Not simply to look out to the future, though we ought to do that and long for that day. But to walk by faith and live in hope today. Let's pray together. Oh God, you are so good. You are faithful. You hold all knowledge in your hand. We pray that the truth, that you are the God who reveals, you are the God whose words and ways, whose truth soothes the troubled soul, that that truth would be dear to us, that we would rejoice that you are a God who reveals and we would rejoice in what you have revealed. We pray that you would help us to not look to man-made theories or philosophies or therapies for help for our soul, but rather look to you. We pray that we would not look for hope to any government or kingdom, even those that we appreciate and are thankful for, but rather we would find our hope in you. And we pray that your kingdom would come 
and your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we pray this for the sake and in the name of our dear King and High Priest and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.